This is Jeffrey Aaron. Welcome to Flying Talkers. Today we look back at the time when the Beatles came into Los Angeles International Airport. It was 55 years ago uh, in 1964. Previous to that, they had come into New York, and if you check back through our episodes on April the 11th, we reported that story. Once in a while, Flying Talkers wants to take a look around us and talk about other things happening in our world. So this will be some fun today. The Beatles in Los Angeles from Pan Am to Pandemonium, Part 2. Stay tuned. Flying Typers Podcast is made possible by ATC. Always take care. The best GSSA in the world. Find out more at Air Cargo Europe. June 4th to 7th, they'll be at Hall B1, Booth 317. As Ingo Zimmer, CEO of ATC, said, we'll greet our service partners and potentials for our offering at Air Cargo Europe in Munich, where we're part of the biggest air cargo event in the world. Find out more in Booth 317, Hall B1, ATC, where the customer comes first. July 14th, 1964. More than a month ahead of the Beatles' anticipated arrival at Los Angeles International Airport, LAX, management of the Los Angeles Department of Airports had their first meeting with local disc jockey, nightclub owner, concert promoter, Bob Eubanks, as well as representatives of local police, fire department, and others to plan for the two, quote, B-days, end quote, code for days on which the Beatles would be at LAX. The tour would open on August 19th at San Francisco's Cow Palace, then stop on consecutive days in Las Vegas, Seattle, and Vancouver. The fifth date of their first full tour of the U.S. and Canada would have the Beatles playing the historic Hollywood Bowl on August 23rd, followed by a couple of days off before continuing in Denver on August 26th. Therefore, LAX management was planning for a window believed to begin on August 23rd and to end no later than August 26th. This was not the Beatles' first trip to America, but their first continent-wide concert tour. A few months earlier, on February 7th, the band had landed at New York's JFK International Airport for the first of two days' performances split into three broadcasts that bookended a week during which they played once a concert each in Washington, D.C. and New York's Carnegie Hall. In the intervening months, the Beatles held all of the top five slots in the U.S. record charts in a single week in April and July. United Artists released the movie A Hard Day's Night to surprisingly widespread acclaim. The Beatles, in other words, dominated the music charts in literally unprecedented fashion and had added cinema to their conquest. In an era when paper concert tickets were sold in box offices 
in exchange for cash, the Hollywood Bowl show had sold out in three and a half hours, quickly as pre-internet sales allowed. With the concert sold out, the local concert promoter had no need for additional hype and the individual Beatles had already tired of constant hounding by the fans and the media. In this context, there were no dissenters when Los Angeles Airport's operators resolved to avoid the bedlam that had transpired at JFK, where Beatles management encouraged local media to spur a larger-than-life first impression by spreading details of the band's airport arrival. So the objective was to make the Beatles' presence at Los Angeles as much of a non-event as possible. First judgment was that there would be no airport reception. Essentially, airport management sought to minimize the fans' hope that the airport might offer their best opportunity to see the band. With only five days to prepare for an entirely different operational landscape, on August 13th, airport management was informed that the Beatles would arrive at Los Angeles on its international commercial flight to America en route to San Francisco. In other words, they'd come here first. Apart from their desire to minimize the impact, almost everything else had to change from the plan refined over the preceding month. Los Angeles management quickly conferred with U.S. public health, immigration, customs, as well as with the FAA to plot a path for the Beatles to be processed with minimal exposure. Allied agencies such as police and fire departments would have to have limited roles in this particular operation since the Beatles would not leave the airport's sterile area but would stop at LAX for less than an hour before continuing to San Francisco. As with their first trip to America, the Beatles again would arrive on a Pan Am commercial flight, Pan American World Airways. I, I feel constrained to mention that since that company, believe it or not, has been out of business since 1991. Pan Am boasted one of the most savvy marketing teams found in any industry of its day and had perfected the practice of product placement. By positioning its logo in so many iconic images of the Beatles' arrival at JFK, you might not even believe it today in this age of branding left and right. Witness Pan Am's public relations and other staff had considerable influence over the scene at Kennedy near their corporate headquarters. So Pan Am's influence over planning at Los Angeles appears at this point in the rearview mirror to have been nominal, although the airline's logo still appeared omnipresent. On August 18th, Pan Am's Boeing 707-321 departed London Heathrow with the Beatles on board. Pan Am's practice was to name each of its Clipper aircraft, and this one, registered N728PA, was named 
Jet Clipper Peerless had a name even more perfectly suiting the Beatles than February's Clipper Defiance. Still, Pan Am placed a temporary sticker over the Clipper name to brand it Jet Clipper Beatles. While the Beatles would pay, play Vancouver, Toronto, and Montreal on Canadian dates this tour, a 25- to 35-minute refueling stop at Winnipeg would be Manitoba's only exposure to the Beatles, and the locals treated the event as a proxy for an actual concert. Allegedly tipped by an Air Canada employee, Winnipeg radio stations broadcast flight details resulting in throngs of fans jamming the airport's outdoor observation deck and airfield entrances. Talk about a world gone by, huh? How about this stuff? Impressed by the turnout, Beatles manager Brian Epstein encouraged the band to deplane the aircraft and acknowledge the crowd. The Beatles descended hastily, gathered stairs, and were immediately surrounded by reporters who could barely believe their good fortune at this impromptu opportunity. Overcome by the situation, a 17-year-old, Bruce Decker, made a mad dash for the aircraft, temporarily eluding security before being captured by Mounties almost two-thirds of the way up the aircraft stairs. It was just the kind of scene airport management in Los Angeles were dedicated and resolved to prevent. Quote, we couldn't see anything from the observation platform, end quote, Decker later recalled, quote, so we sneaked down to the ramp. It was fascinating to see the Beatles in person here in Winnipeg. I just figured I could make it up those steps, and I no sooner thought of it, and I was gone. I had to get a closer look at them. The crowd roared when they saw me go. Just as the Mounties were wrestling with me, I caught a glimpse of the Beatles coming through the door, and they were laughing too. Afterwards, kids crowded around me, touching me and screaming. The girls thought there was some kind of magic about me because I got so close to them. Well, too cool for school, unquote that. Refueling completed, and the crowd assuaged. 707 was on its way to Los Angeles. Well, Lax's no reception mandate had given way to plans for a press conference on the lower level of the airport's Satellite 2 terminal. The press conference logistics had to be hastily worked out with reporters, as well as Pan Am and even customs agents in order to preserve movement of the Beatles through the airport without exposure to the public. Airport management still hoped that fans could be prevented from learning of the Beatles' brief president LAX, but by late morning, Los Angeles area news media began reporting that the Beatles would clear customs at LAX between 3.30 and 4.30 that same day. While media leaks were far from ideal, Los Angeles management relied on the basic plan they had coordinated in recent day with police airport security and other operations personnel. All gates to the airfield were dutifully manned. The stairways and elevators leading to the satellite's lower levels were guarded, and lobby windows surrounded gate 20 where the international flight would deplane. They were all barricaded. Surplus barricades were also strategically stowed should it become necessary to seal the entire satellite area.
The crowd began streaming in around one o'clock, and by four o'clock, the crowd was estimated at about four hundred. Although the small crowd shrieks and constant motion from window to window gave the impression of an exponentially larger crowd, most were young girls, six to sixteen, with very few boys and no parents in sight. Having already deciphered that a press conference was to be held, the girls attempted to bond with reporters and photographers until tearfully separated at the check-in point, from which the registered press was escorted to the secret conference room. At 4:15, the 707 taxied to Gate 20. This provided the only chance for much of the LA public to see the Beatles that day, descending the stairs and posing for a few pictures. The band acknowledged fans visible through the windows, and although lasting only a few seconds, this was the most worrisome moment for airport management as double-paned lobby glass was pounded by the hysterical fans. The press conference was intended to mark the Beatles' arrival in America, but its hurried preparation was evident immediately. Rather than the Beatles' smooth press manager Derek Taylor moderating, reporters shouted a cacophony of questions, with multiple Beatles answering concurrently. Sidebar discussions abounded as reporters edged near the dais to question individual Beatles. Other reporters audibly protested the chaos. A visibly irritated John Lennon appeared relieved when manager Brian Epstein whispered a message that Lennon enthusiastically recited as the airport authority would like us to close this thing down right now. Standing and nodding for his bandmates to follow, Lennon announced again, "The airport man says we've got to go." Adding dryly, "Back to the twenty-third for more photos and fun, all right." Laughing, contrasted with the triumph of cheekiness and goodwill that characterized the Beatles' press conference of JFK in February, newsreel footage reveals that the Los Angeles press conference was a barely tolerable slog. After signing a few autographs to reporters as they left the conference room, the band was led to slip aboard their 5:15 departure to San Francisco. An unanticipated early B day, lasting almost exactly an hour, passed with no injuries to the Beatles or their fans. In an internal memorandum, Los Angeles Airport's public relations director Peggy Herford expressed grudging admiration for sharp-witted sub-teen and teenage girls whose grapevine communication systems antiquates the entire electronics industry. That's a direct quote. And several decades ahead of Facebook and Twitter, I might add. One of the most memorable characterizations of the excitement the Beatles stirred in their young female fans, Herford also noticed in her in her memo, quote, shrieks, tears, and wet pants occurred simultaneously, end quote. So the next two B days at LAX should have been relatively less complicated on the air side, due to the fact that they were domestic flights aboard a chartered airline that could deplane and board the band on the aircraft parking ramp without entering the terminal. 
On the other hand, these flights would introduce landside challenges given that the Beatles would need to leave and enter the airport via ground transportation. These would be the two flights for which airport management and its allied partners had already been planning for more than a month. Planners tweaked the plans due to lessons learned already specifically that the airport and airline employees posed potential weaknesses in leaking information to their children. Days ahead of the anticipated arrival for the Hollywood Bowl show, the Department of Airports sent a message to all media that if LAX were too congested, the Beatles, American Flyers chartered aircraft, would be diverted to another Southern California airport. Generalized instructions were telephoned to Tanner Moore Livery, who were providing ground transportation for the Beatles and their entourage, as well as to Bob Eubanks and to American Flyers. All 35 individuals on the contact list were advised to be on standby for final instructions when the arrival airport could be confirmed. Compared with the news of the unanticipated extra flight operation at LAX a week earlier, the next unexpected news was much more welcome. Instead of a scheduled arrival at 3 p.m. on the day of the show, basically rush hour at Los Angeles, the Beatles would leave immediately after the preceding show and arrive at Los Angeles in the very early morning. So coming from Vancouver, the flight could pre-clear customs in Canada or stop in Seattle. So it would arrive at Los Angeles and essentially a domestic flight. This would allow the aircraft to stop at a remote location rather than use the terminal. So to prevent media leaks, only four people knew the proposed remote location on the airfield. Airport staff gladly traded a long night for a fewer fans and more predictable ground transportation. Essential personnel reported at 9 p.m. that the airport department's public relations team providing key communications and the general manager of operations serving as field commander. Angie Maceas of LA's PR department had met the Beatles and their management when staying in the same hotel in Copenhagen at the beginning of their world tour on June 4th. 64. Airport guides Ethel Pattison and James Berkey served as decoys in other limousines while directing the Beatles chauffeurs to a remote airport gate. It was all set up. A key element of the plan fell quickly as the team learned the flight had not pre-cleared customs in Canada and therefore the remote location was out the window, have to be replaced by using the north side of Satellite 2 which at least was not visible to the public. So at 3.45 a.m., the Beatles chartered Constellation, Lockheed Constellation, by the way, arrived the darkened ramp to no more clamor than a handful of reporters, airport, and airline employees. So here's where it gets very cool. A baggage tug route was used to transport the Beatles to the customs clearance area. Already known to the Beatles press officer, Derek Taylor and road manager, Neil Aspinall, Lax's Angie Messias was handed the Beatles passports to marshal through processing. 
Day two at LAX had been relatively painless. Fans had been limited to the hundreds that had taken the bait regarding prospective alternative airports, with several hundred also reported at Ontario Airport. Hours after the Beatles had left LAX, about 150 fans remained in the Satellite 2 lobby, refusing to believe they'd already missed seeing the band. Peggy, Dear Peggy Herford's memo records display that the young girls answered that they had nowhere to go because their mothers believed they were spending the night at friends' homes and were coming to the airport at 10 a.m. After the Hollywood Bowl concert and a couple of days off, the final B-Day would be a scheduled 10.30 departure to Denver on the morning of August 26th. With no need for international processing, the outbound flight could finally use the remote airfield location intended to be utilized for the inbound flight. Unaware of the remote location to be used for the charter flight, droves of fans, educated guesses favored Satellite 6, where scheduled flights to Denver frequently departed, and Satellite 2 possibility because it had already been used by the Beatles on a previous international flight. While Lax's Angie Messiahs reported to the Beatles rented mansion in Bel Air for the loadout, advising airport manager when cars transporting the entourage and equipment left at 9.50 a.m. and then rode with the Beatles in their limo departing the mansion for Lax around 10.20 a.m. The Beatles' white Continental was intercepted along Pershing Drive at the airport's west end and then guided by a security card through the gate directly to the airport ramp. Amidst a few more photos, the Beatles boarded the American Flyers aircraft and, at 11.04, were airborne closing out the third of three B-Days, with the only casuals being the disappointment of fans who had hoped for more access but had no enduring injuries. To airport management, that was the most important metric for success. Airport management had developed an approach flexible enough to absorb multiple unforeseen challenges. Not only would this methodology be recycled in future LAX events, but it would also be shared with airport operators everywhere, even those less acclimated to VIPs, or especially, I should say. Nobody involved with that first Beatles U.S. tour in 1964 could have known that the group would only tour for two more years. Following a variety of unfortunate circumstances in 1966, that would find the Beatles beaten by military thugs in the Manila airport and stalked by the Ku Klux Klan in America, they stopped touring and became a studio-only entity until breaking up at the end of the 60s. Then, KRLAAM 1110 radio DJ Bob Eubanks mortgaged his house to pay the Beatles $25,000 for their performance at the Hollywood Bowl in 1964, and would also promote the Beatles' two performances at the Hollywood Bowl in 1965, as well as their 1966 show at Dodger Stadium. In a recent interview, Eubanks observed how the travel ground down the band over the course of these three years. They got tired of touring, he said. After the 66 tour, they didn't want to do that anymore. My personal opinion is, Bob Eubank said, was they were tired, tired of being hassled, tired of being chased. They said, okay, we're done. 
one of the Royal Canadian Mounties who witnessed Decker's dash to board the Beatles airplane in Winnipeg we spoke about before, found the unbridled enthusiasm of the youths embarrassing, adding, quote, we've never seen anything like this before and I hope we'll never see it again, end quote. More than 50 years later, we haven't seen anything quite like it again. More than a few middle-aged adults only wish they could. Here's a little postscript. Decker's Dash became an immortal part of Winnipeg folklore. Namesake Bruce Decker was a guitar player in a local band, the Deverons, with Burton Cummings, who would leave the group to join the Canadian legends and Guess Who. Decker himself would also join the Guess Who, but only for a few months in 1965. Sadly, Decker was killed in a car crash in the 1980s and never would get to meet any of the Beatles, but his former bandmate Cummings, would tour extensively as a member of Ringo Starr's backing band. DJ and concert promoter Bob Eubanks became better known nationally later on television for hosting the newlywed game and Card Sharks. In addition to concert promotions in Los Angeles, Eubanks operated several Cinnamon Cinder nightclubs and even managed major country music acts, including Dolly Parton, Barbara Mandrell, and Marty Robbins. In 2005, he received a Lifetime Achievement Emmy Award from the Academy television arts and sciences at age 78 he remains a popular personality and was just a, a panelist at the uh, recent beatles fest in chicago jet clipper peerless registration n728pa was later sold to air manila international and then bought by an eccentric millionaire who converted the aircraft into a stationary restaurant called club 707 near the manila airport Interestingly, the aircraft has an unsubstantiated local cachet for having been owned by Elvis Presley, while its one-time function as Jet Clipper Beatles appears nowhere in the promotional material. According to the latest update found, it is fitted out as a private jet with the original bar, desk, and seating. The tables have been added to accommodate up to 40 diners. Peggy Herford's original memorandum dated 92864 provided invaluable details about the timeless and the timelines and participants and airport management's plannings for the Beatles flights. Peggy's whimsical maternal even prose provided an indelible time capsule of a grown woman's impression of the youthful Beatles fans. According to the LA Times obituary from April 15, 1991, our dear friend was among the first women to head a public relations department of a major airport and led it for a quarter century. Her retirement in 1977 was attended by more than 500 well-wishers and several television crews. Since 1990, Airport Council International has presented annually its Peggy Herford Award to honor outstanding achievements in marketing and public relations. Ethel Patterson remains active with the Flight Path Museum at Los Angeles. The Ethel Patterson Rose Garden was dedicated on January 25, 2006, almost 12 years ago, 13 years ago, to com commemorate what were then already 50 years of service to Los Angeles World Airports. 
After many years as chief airport guide, her current title is airport information specialist. To many others, she's simply the heart of LAX. Angie Messias would be the envy of almost any Beatles fan. Her friendship with the Beatles handlers began when she happened to stay in the same hotel in Copenhagen in June 1964, and so was already known to them when the band arrived at Lax. She held on to the Beatles' passports to clear customs, attended the Hollywood Bowl concert, and a Capitol Records function as the Beatles' guest and was a visitor to the Bel Air mansion that they inhabited. She also rolled with them for their departure flight at Los Angeles. When the band returned in 1965, she saw them again and went with the Beatle road manager Neil Aspinall to see Little Richard perform a local club show on Los Angeles Pico Boulevard. While she continues to live in Los Angeles in, in that area and stays in touch with her former colleagues at Flight Path. Finally, adjacent to the LAX airfield, the Flight Path Museum and Learning Center is a nonprofit community based resource combining historic exhibits, educational tours, and program research facilities and community events. I want to extend my special thanks to Michael Weber, one of the great Beatles fans in the history of Beatles fans. Mike is from Kansas City, one of the great jazz cities of this country, and he combines a scholar's view of the uh, air cargo business. He's a uh, major factor at Ludlum and Brown, uh, cargo consultants, but he also likes music. And, and, and like yours truly, we, we think there's a lot going on in our business on the other side of the airport that's worth remembering and reporting. Everybody's heard the Beatles story, as I said at the top, but Mike Weber gave this two-part series an awful lot of heart and soul. So we thank Mike for that, and we look forward to uh, what he has to say about Little Richard. I don't know. It just was a wonderful, wonderful experience to be able to bring this to you. Stay tuned to this channel next week when we're in Munich, Germany for Air Cargo Europe. Lots of news coming out of that particular part of the air cargo business as that giant show takes place at the Messe München amongst all the white asparagus and the spargel and the celebration of that time of year in Germany and Bavaria. For your time this time, until next time, this is Jeffrey Aaron saying, thanks for listening. Keep them flying, Air Cargo. Goodbye. Speak to me. Good, Lou.